looking to uh, God for uh, his help and guidance, let's uh, turn to the book of Exodus then and to chapter 20. Our focus is on uh, verse 3, but we'll just read from verse 1. Uh, you'll remember that uh, the people of God are surrounding Mount Sinai, and the presence of God is clear on that mountain, and then suddenly they hear the actual voice of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And now the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now I hope um, we've understood the importance of the Ten Commandments, uh, which God, as I said, actually spoke audibly from the mountaintop in Sinai. That was uh, an unusual, in fact, a unique occurrence when the voice of God spoke to the whole church. And uh, the rest of the law was given to Moses on the mountain, but the Ten Commandments were spoken by God. And the importance of these commandments lay in the fact that they are, first of all, foundational commandments. They're foundational, in other words, to our relationship with God. That is why these commandments were stored inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne on which God sat in the tabernacle later in the temple. So they're foundational. Unless we respect these commandments, there is no fellowship between us and God. It's vital to remember that still. And as well as being foundational, the commandments, the Ten Commandments, are permanent. There are some commandments, obviously, that expired. The whole of the ceremonial law to do with sacrifices and priesthood and so on, it expired with the coming of Christ. The Ten Commandments never expire. That's why they were written in stone by the finger of God and deposited in the ark. They are there to last forever. And as well as being foundational and permanent, you'll remember that these Ten Commandments are also universal. Although they are given in this precise form, at this precise time to Israel, to remind them of the nature of God and the holiness that he requires of them, they nonetheless express a written moral law that Paul tells us is with us from birth. You buy a computer, it's pre-programmed. Every single person born into the world has a moral knowledge of the essence of these Ten Commandments. There may be details attached to some which are given on this occasion, but nonetheless the essence of them is written on the human heart. And suppose you were never to hear the Gospel, you will be judged on the basis of this moral law itself. And where do you or I stand in the light of that? 
if, if you recognise tonight that this moral law condemns you, there's only one place you can go. And praise God that he's told you where that is. He's provided it himself. And it's so near you that all you need to do is to commit yourself to that Saviour. And he pays that price and he washes you clean. Now the Ten Commandments, as Ten Commandments, have other qualities too. And it would be interesting just to to bring them before you, but um, I think it's best to pick them up just as we go through the commandments. It's probably enough just to highlight at the beginning that they're wider and deeper than we think them to be. They're wider in the sense that the Ten Commandments really are an ethic for life. They fundamentally cover every area of your relationship with God in the first four commandments and every relationship that you have with people in the next six commandments. You could write a whole manual of ethics underneath the Ten Commandments because they were designed to be like that. They are wide. As David said in one of the Psalms, your commandments are exceedingly broad. And the more you look into them, the broader they actually are. They're also deeper than we think them to be. And I hinted at this in the morning because some of them sound very external and easy to keep. Don't steal. Well, that's straightforward. Don't commit adultery. That's straightforward. But as the Lord expounds the Ten Commandments in the New Testament, you'll discover they're not straightforward in that respect at all. The commandment not to steal goes very deep into the heart, covering things like robbing God of his time or his worship. Even the commandment not to commit adultery, the Lord says, refers to the eye and the way you look at someone, as well as the actual act itself. Those shalt not kill has to do with hating people in your heart. He says that if you actually hate someone in your heart, you are guilty of a breach of the sixth commandment. Maybe not in the first degree, maybe it's the second or third degree, but still guilty. So the commandments are wide and they are also exceedingly deep. But we'll see these, and these things too, better as we go on. I want tonight to turn with you to the first commandment. And the first question in connection with the first commandment, believe it or not, is is what is it? What is the first commandment? It should be easy, but it's amazing how complicated some things can be, or how people can complicate them. These ten commandments are usually referred to as ten words. The Lord calls them commandments, but the actual numeral ten only appears in connection with the expression words, the ten words. And the fact is that some people have broken up these ten words differently. The Jews, for example, say that the first part of them, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, is the first word. And then they combine the next two commandments as being one commandment against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you shall not make for yourself a card image. So, those two are combined into one. So they count them that way. The Roman Catholic Church too 
counts them differently. Although they say that verse 2 is a kind of preface, just as we hold it to be, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, they also combine the next two commandments into one as being a single commandment against idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, that is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a representation of anything in heaven or on the earth or under the earth. How then do they get ten commandments? Well, amazingly, the Roman Catholic Church splits up the tenth commandment into two. If you go down to verse 17, which is, well, we know it as the tenth, the commandment against covetousness, remarkably they break this up into two. They say that the ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house. The tenth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant. Now that, I think, to us sounds strange. And it should sound strange because it's unusual that two of the ten commandments should both be saying you shall not covet. Their response to that is, well, why should the neighbor's house take precedence over his wife? The answer to that is that it doesn't take precedence. The single commandment is saying emphatically at the beginning, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Notice the semicolon after that. That's the main part of the commandment. And if you're to ask, well, what do you mean by the neighbor's house? Well, let me specify it. You must not covet primarily your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant his ox, and so on. You could substitute, in many respects, today's possessions for these things. So it's amazing how you get all these different theories, but the fact of the matter is that verse 2 is what it obviously is. It's an introductory preface. God says, first of all, the first thing that he speaks from the mountain is he introduces himself. Not that this voice needs any introduction. I am Jehovah, the Lord, your God, who brought you, of course in kindness and grace, out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. One, you shall have no other gods before me. And two, of course, you shall not make for yourself a card image. That's how the Orthodox churches understand it, the Russian, the Greek, the Eastern Orthodoxes, all the Reformed churches understand it, that. And to be honest, it's obviously true. The first commandment is that alone. It's interesting, you see, that if, if the Roman Catholic Church maybe understood that better, their worship would perhaps change significantly. They fail to see that the second commandment is all about how we worship. Not who we worship, but how we worship. The first commandment is about who we worship. The second one is about how we worship him. And that matters, of course, a lot to God. Well then, first of all, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but it's something you need to keep in your head all the way as we're working through the commandments. As I'm saying this, I'm pretty sure I did mention it. The you here at the front of every command is you singular. Uh, that, of course, comes through in the old authorised version where the you singular was still being used in the 17th century. Thou, you as a person, shall have no other gods before me. You as a person 
must not make for yourself a current image. You as a person must not kill and so on. One of the reasons that's important is because it's always easy to lose yourself in a crowd. And that can be true in the preaching of the word. You can think of me as speaking to you as a body of people tonight. But I, I mentioned in the morning the way in which God can sometimes use the word uh, to isolate you in such a way that there is nobody present but yourself. You're conscious that God is communicating with you. Now, as the Israelites were gathered around the mountain, there was no question of God speaking to the generality of the people and the whole thing washing over them as, a, as an ecclesiastical body or a, or a body politic. God was addressing them individually. This moral law from me, he says, this law of fellowship between me and you, this basis on which my holiness can meet you as a sinner, is addressed to you individually. You carry personal responsibility for how you conduct your life in the light of these laws which I'm giving you. So just bear that in mind all the time. Doubtless I'll refresh your mind from time to time in connection with it. But me too, God is addressing me and God is addressing you, singular, thou. Well then, <clears throat> what of course he commands us here has a, a breadth to it. I mean, how is it possible, really, to preach on this? And I say, well, that's what I have to ask myself. You shall have no other gods before me. I mean, how broad is that? How deep is that? One level, maybe it sounds obvious enough. Another level, it's got lots of levels. There's so much in the commandment. To begin with, you'll remember that every commandment has its positive side and its negative side. Just by saying, thou shalt not... It's also saying, thou shalt. Uh, some of you will have learned that when you learned your catechism as children. I know it's probably a catechism that's long since forgotten, maybe, in, in some of your minds. But you'll have learned the first commandment. The next question would be, what does the first commandment require? The next question would be, what does the first commandment forbid? Because there is a positive and negative sign. If you shall have no other gods before me, it's obvious that you must have me as your God. That is the positive side to the commandment. I, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. If I say, don't kill, I am also saying, preserve life. You must be pro-life at every stage of life. If I say, don't lie, I'm obviously saying, tell the truth. So what's required and what's forbidden? And if you do remember your catechism, in connection with the first commandment, it asks, what's required? And the answer is, what's required is to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God. That's an objective truth, that he is, in fact, the only true God, that he is your God, personal, and that you worship and glorify him. Accordingly. That's succinct. Um, it's all encompassing, as the Catechism always is. What's required is to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly. And just in case we think something like that is very formal or very ceremonial, we'll remember how Christ Himself 
explained it. That the real explanation or definition of this command is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It's got love in it. Love's right at its heart. So to have God as your God is to know and acknowledge him. And that means to love him for who he is in himself and what he is to you. Because he's a lot to you. Whether you're a Christian or not tonight, in that respect it's neither here nor there because he is a lot to you. Even as an unbeliever, perhaps you have little idea of what God is to you. Not in terms of your appreciation of it, but what he is in fact to you, what he does for you, and the care he takes over you. And that that really takes us to the positive side of it. You shall have no other gods before me. Have me as your God. Why should you? Well, why shouldn't you? After all, you do owe him everything. The fact of the matter is, to begin with, he is your maker. The life stream that you received from your parents was originally God-breathed into the nostrils of our original ancestor. Our human nature, soul and body, was given to us by God. As Psalm 100 reminds us, he is our maker. And the writer to the Hebrews says that he is the father of our spirits. Now, when you make something, you're usually proud of it, and it's yours. Especially if the materials are yours. You constructed it and devised it. But that's what you are tonight. You're a made thing. You're a made person. Certainly the naturalistic and materialistic evolutionary worldview out there which says that we all came from whatever was there in the first place by a random process of uh, mutation and so on. That will deny that we are made. We just are. Um, And it's not really difficult to move from, from that point of view to feeling that there's not much point in life because guess what, friends? There isn't. There isn't. That's just a fact. Uh, Elementary reason and logic will tell you that, that if you're just the chance production of the random movement of atoms, that's absolutely right. There's no point to your life at all. There will be no point to your death. No more than the birth and the death of a newt or a frog or a snail. You're just a life form. You might be more interesting to yourself, but in the grand scheme of things, you don't matter. That's what's being taught many people and it's no wonder they draw the conclusions themselves. Well, let me tell you on the authority of God's word, let me tell you on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ, that you're much more than that. You are made and stamped tonight, even as a sinner, with the image of God. Your calling is to know him and to love him and to live forever in his company and fellowship. Now, if that's not something to strive for, something to lay hold of and something to grasp, something that the Lord calls eternal life, then I don't know what is. You're a dying man and a dying woman. I'm a dying man too. But life is offered in the Gospels. You are made. God is your maker. For that you should be thankful, rather than questioning if it's real at all. 
The second thing, of course, intimately bound up with that is the fact that God is your sustainer. Again, that's irrespective of whether you recognise that or not. You may think you look after yourself and you're keeping yourself in life. fact of the matter is none of us can keep ourselves in life. None of us can. When Daniel was speaking to Belshazzar on the night that the Babylonian Empire fell, um, he tells him, he tells Belshazzar how God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, and how he had affected and changed his life. And he said to Belshazzar, you knew all that, but you've chosen to live your life as though these things never happened, as though the word of God had never spoken to your father, as though no change had come into his life, and you brought the kingdom right back to the degradation it was at beforehand. These things were so, although this God, he says, holds your breath in his hand. These were powerful words. They still are powerful words. And it's a powerful thought to think on, that the breath that you breathe, which you take for granted, I mean, that, that you'll inhale in a moment's time, and you, that you'll exhale, is in the hand of God. That's in the hand of God. It's not merely the result, again, of processes that are going on in your body. Of course, that's intimately connected with us because, with it because God made us as a psychosomatic unity. But the fact of the matter is that that breath is in the hand of God. And if he takes it away, you're dead. And if you're dead, you're standing before the judgment seat of God. Just a breath. A breath between you and your maker. Amos famously told Israel, prepare to meet your God. Are, are you ready for that? Suppose you were to die in a moment. Suppose we carried you out of this building. Are you ready to meet your God? Well, you need to be thankful that in spite of being a sinner, he is still sustaining you. Not only that, he's your benefactor. By that I mean that he feeds you, clothes you, shelters you, warms you, provides you with a thousand good things in providence every day of life. Me too, when I don't deserve any of it, and neither do you. If you think you do, or if I think you do, we're wrong. On what basis do we have a right to any of that? When we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we are entitled to his wrath, on what basis, on what basis can we say to God, you must do this for me? Or you must do that for me. No, it's in kindness that he clothes, warms, feeds you and provides you with so much that you have. He is also, of course, your keeper, preserves you. Any idea how many dangerous situations you're in every day? No, no you don't. Neither do I. Sometimes God lets them get very near these dangerous situations. Maybe we escape them by a hair's breadth. And we're just reminded that, well, I'm, I'm actually being kept. Although I don't acknowledge it, I'm never thankful for it, but I'm being kept in thousands of different ways every single day by the God who makes and sustains me. He's a benefactor and he's a keeper. And for some of us too, God is worthy of being our God because he is, of course, a redeemer. Now some of you can't say that. At least I think that some of you cannot say that. That God is your redeemer. 
But for those of you who can, it's important to remember that you of all people should be keeping this commandment. You'll notice how it flows from the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt, that's the darkness of sin, out of the house of bondage, that's the bondage of sin, you shall have no other gods before me. Why don't you just swap the commandment and the preface to get the full force of it? You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. What a reason that is to make sure that the Lord is our God. I am the Lord, your God. The Lord is Jehovah, the Eternal One, without beginning, without end, the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. I am that I am. I am He, and I am your God, the one who exercises His power and his loving kindness on your behalf. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Now, to break this command is to fail to know and acknowledge this God in your life. You're supposed to do that in your life by serving him, worshipping him and keeping whatever he calls you to keep by way of commandments. Failing to do that is some kind of idolatry because you are putting something else or somebody else in the place of God himself. That's the essence of idolatry. In our minds growing up, the essence of idolatry is a, a squat figure like the Buddha sitting or just something like that. And you always think in your head that it's really stupid for people to be bowing down in front of figures like that and somehow ascribing powers to them. You think, well, who's daft enough to do that? Well, people aren't so stupid. Idolatry isn't so stupid. And it's a lot more easy for the devil to deceive us on all these matters than any of us realize. And that's one thing I want us to understand really well tonight by the grace of God. Idolatry is giving the place or the glory to something or to someone that actually belongs to God. Now the normal place where you give the glory is actually to yourself. Your number one idol tonight, if you're not a Christian, is actually yourself. That's what sin did in the Garden of Eden. Um, once man and woman, man, male and female, once they both chose, you, know, you notice the binary from the beginning, God made man male and female, he created him, right from the beginning. It's interesting that every single uh, perversion of truth that has appeared so much in recent years is pretty much dealt with in the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, a lot of nonsense and worse than nonsense that is going around today is just cut right there at the beginning. God created man, male and female, he created him. But as male and female, they fell. Now, of course, Satan seduced them into sin 
And the promise that he held out to them was that if, if they chose their own moral destiny, if they reached out to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and chose their own life, Satan said, you shall be as God. Now it's translated gods in many versions. The reason for that actually is because the plural form in Hebrew is the same as the singular form. Elohim can sometimes mean gods, sometimes it can mean God. So the translation is not necessarily wrong, but I think the translation is God. You shall be God yourself. If it's plural, then he's saying to Adam and to Eve, essentially the two of you here, subservient for now to your maker, you can rise up in a new dignity, in a new glory. Set your own moral agenda. Have your own moral code. Live as you want. Choose to be whatever and whoever you want to be. Which, of course, is what Disney tells every child. That you can be whatever or whoever you want to be. That was the first seduction into sin. And, of course, it worked. And it still does. It still does. I mean, what I, what I mean when I say that you, yourself, are your own idol, I mean, what I mean by that is, is simply that you choose your rule of life, you set your own regulations for how you live your life, and that way of life is what pleases yourself. And in fact, if I was to say to you that that life should actually be governed by this book, you should say, no, <laughs> no. Not that book. Maybe, in fact, you might say any book, but certainly not that book. But that is the essence of idolatry, to live as you please without reference to God. Are you guilty of that tonight? Are you guilty of it? Are you living the, the life you want to live or the life God calls you to live? Idolatry starts to cut close. But there are extensions of yourself that can make you feel that you're not living for yourself when in a way you are. The first extension of yourself is your family. Now it's right to love your family. It's actually right in many ways to put your family before yourself. But the Lord Jesus Christ warns you about putting your family before God. And there's lots of ways in which you can do that. Some people let their family dictate what church they go to, whether they go to church at all, what entertainments go on in the house, what programs appear on the television, so on, so on, and so on. Whereas the Lord Jesus Christ said, if anyone comes to me, now he puts this really powerfully. We, we are not to understand this absolutely literally because Again, it's a, it's a certain form of expression to convey strength of feeling. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, now elsewhere he tells us to love them, but what he means here is in comparison. In comparison with the place I have in your life, it's like this. If you come to me but do not hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yourself also, you cannot be my disciple. That's very cutting. 
There's only one way I can apply that to you, and that's just by asking you very starkly, do you love your family more than you love God? No, it's not that you're supposed to not love your family. I mean, society needs people, especially fathers, to love their children a lot more. But do you love your family more than God? If you do, you're an idolater. It doesn't matter if you sit down in front of a silver statue or not. That is idolatry. Another extension of yourself is your work. What you produce, what you achieve. Some people begin to serve that as though there's nothing like it in life. In fact, some people put that before their family. And their families break up. Watch, by the way, that you don't do that. I'm not saying this as though everybody who does this is terribly evil and it's something that we all couldn't do. It's something that we could all easily do. But watch that you don't break up your home by making a god of your work. That you don't break up your marriage by making a god of your work. You'll remember when Christ told the parable about the feast that had been prepared for people, which was a, a picture of himself in the gospel. And there was a call going out for people to come to the feast. And one person said, well, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, he says, and I really need to go and test them. Well, did he? Well, he didn't come to the feast. Another one said, I've just bought a piece of ground and I, I really want to examine it. So he didn't come to the feast either. Property, work, didn't come to the feast these things can keep a lot of people from Christ, and by definition, that's idolatry. And if, if your work is, is higher than God, again, it's idolatry. Let me take another example. Your capital, your money, or your securities, that can be your idol in life. You'll remember the rich young ruler was tested on that point. Good master, he said. What shall I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he, he recited the second table of the law, except the tenth. He, he didn't say, you shall not covenant. The young man said, I've kept these since I was a young man. Jesus said, very well, he said. Now we're told that Jesus loved him. Jesus also penetrated right to his heart and said, you lack one thing. I know what it is. Sell what you've got just come and follow me along with this body of my disciples. The young man went away sorrowful. Why? The Bible tells us because he had many riches. Effectively, his riches were between himself and Christ. His riches were between himself and God. So his riches are his idol. That's why Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon. It's binary. Again, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is the Aramaic term for wealth. You can't serve them both. If God gives you wealth, use it to serve God. Let nothing come between you and God. After all, Paul makes the remarkable statement in two of his letters that covetousness is idolatry. You'll notice how the Ten Commandments close in on themselves. I remember once somebody saying that the political spectrum is like a horseshoe. You know, you've got fascism and it goes round like that and it comes back to communism, which is really just very like fascism. They meet. The more extreme you get, they meet. 
the Ten Commandments work like that strangely too. They go round like this. When you reach number ten, covetousness, Paul tells us it's idolatry. You're back where you started. There's a wholeness and a, a beauty and a perfection to them. I'll come to that just in a second. But your prime idol is yourself. <clears throat> no. Idolatry is a bit more complicated than that because <clears throat> there's a conflict in your heart. For one thing, God's word cuts across you. And God made us that way. After all, as we saw already, these commandments are written in your heart. What's more, the, the word itself is preached to you and the spirit of God very often accompanies the word and starts to, to squeeze you. It starts to prick your conscience sometimes on these issues. And along with that, there's another fundamental factor that because of the way you're made and the way God made you to adore and to worship himself, that faculty remains even when you've decided to reject God. The faculty remains. Now, some people refer to it as a religious gene. It's not a religious gene, but it is a religious truth. It's part of your psyche, it's part of your spiritual makeup that you must adore and worship you've lost the creator whom you should worship but lo and behold what you do is you transfer it onto the creature of course primarily yourself but not just yourself you see you need to go out beyond yourself this sense of love and this sense of adoration awe and worship needs to go out there there's got to be something bigger than yourself in the world and that's where idolatry really begins to take hold. And the first form of it centres not on yourself, but on mankind. On mankind. As the greatest species on earth. The greatest species on earth. The technical term for that really is humanism. It's humanism. You know, I'm sure we're, we're all familiar with that. It means essentially that this world is all about people. And humanism is accompanied with rationalism, which is the belief that people can work everything out themselves. This mess of a world that we're in is only a mess because of the soup from which it came, but we're gradually sorting it out. We're gradually getting on top of it. Little by little will bring peace and prosperity across the face of the whole earth. It's like a millennium without God. And we don't need God to accomplish this millennium. We, we can make civilization what it's supposed to be. Men and women will be gods, effectively, ruling over a created order. First example of that in the Bible is in Genesis. It's the city that people built. The first city that was built after the fall. After the flood, sorry. That city, you'll remember, was called Babel. Babylon. Which means confusion. Isn't it interesting that the first city they built after the fall is called confusion? Uh, God had told the human race to spread. They didn't spread, they congregated. Uh, they built a single city, which was to be the centre of their civilization. And at the heart of it was the Tower of Babel, which reached just way up into the sky, the focal point of a humanistic uh, society. 
But of course, God scattered the city and he brought it to nothing. I think there are some ways in which you can look at the whole of history as a warfare between Babylon and Jerusalem. You'll find that the book of Revelation closes with Jerusalem's triumph and Babylon being destroyed because God brings down humanism. But humanism is always there trying to build a city without God. I mean, that's what's happening to this country. It's not an accident. There's actually a deliberate, systematic process of trying to work God and to work Christianity out of all the institutions, especially the schools, in order to bring up a new society that is godless. New constitutions, new secular constitutions, secular schools, secular universities, secular everything. The only church that will exist is a church that will be tolerated, and it will only be tolerated because it itself is comfortable in a secular world, and that's no threat to secularism anyway. It was an interesting thing when Nebuchadnezzar took the holy goods from the temple in Jerusalem, that he went and placed them in one of his own temples in Babylon. It's a way of saying, I'll accommodate you if you behave yourself. Don't try and assert your God above us. If you accept secular rule, we'll give you a little place. That's the conflict that's going on in the world all the time. And humanism is anti-Christ. Humanism is anti-Christian. It exalts man at the expense of God. Building a city without God. Just to stick to the book of Daniel for a minute, some of you may remember the the vision, the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had. He couldn't remember it. You'll remember that, that he couldn't remember it in the morning and he was troubled that he couldn't remember it. He knew it was important, but he just couldn't get it. And he he had seen a a vision of a a composite man uh, with a head of gold and a chest and shoulders of silver, a belly and thigh of bronze, um, and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And he saw a little stone coming down uh, the side of a mountain and smashing into the statue so that it blew it to smithereens and then this stone begins to grow and grow and grow until it becomes a mountain filling the whole earth. He knew the message was important, but he couldn't remember it. Well, Daniel told him what the message was. These four composite metals, he says, are four successive kingdoms. The, the gold head is the kingdom of which you are a head, O king. After it, that's Daniel's way of saying it's nearly finished, by the way. After your kingdom will come another one. That is the Persian kingdom. After another one, after that another one, the bronze kingdom of Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron, the ferocious Roman Empire, which breaks up into the ten toes of iron and clay, which still exist today. These are the essentially the European peoples who are always kind of agitating for place and for space and for power and for supremacy. These are the four successive kingdoms and, and these ten toes will last until the stone appears, until the stone finally smashes the statue completely. Now, the point I want to really emphasise about that is that the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw was a man. Why was it a man? I mean, it could have been anything. It could have been a horse, a lion, 
an eagle. Why a man? Well, it's just God's way of saying that every successive empire is humanistic. It's man-centred. There's always this tendency to make so much of man, to exalt and edify man, man, male and female. And sometimes you find that coming into the church itself. I mean, it's, it's people that matter. People become celebrities. And what do people want? What do people think? And, um, how do you think the church can be better? Or what is it that you want to hear? I mean, it's, it's the worst case in the world, you know, when you find ministers going around saying, what is it that you want to hear? I mean, you tell us what you're supposed to say. That's the way it works. That's the way it should be. But humanism, humanism, inside the churches. But that's idolatry. Is it not? Is it not obviously idolatry? What does it mean for a city or a a nation to establish itself without God at its heart? I'm sure a lot of people were choking as they watched the coronation and they heard these vows being taken and couldn't believe it that this reference is here to our Protestant succession and to our reformed religion. Where's all that coming from? Well, it comes from a particular place. It comes from people who established the nation in righteousness. And the nation lived for a considerable time in righteousness. And even the very utterance of these words, whether they make the people who spoke them choke or not, should be a reminder to us that that's where our strength and our glory and our dignity lies. And to really rise is to go back. I mean, to go forward is to go back. The only way we can move forward is by going back to where the foundation was. I mean, look at what's happening. Do you you think it's an accident that children are going round, boys thinking that they may be girls, and girls thinking they may be boys? And instead of gently leading them through that, you give them a cocktail of drugs to stop girls' breasts growing. And you change their genitals. I mean, ten years ago, if I called that child abuse, you would say, you bet that's child abuse. Who is it that doesn't think it's child abuse? But where does that come from? Well, it comes from saying no to God. And saying yes to man. Because when you say yes to man, what will eventually prevail is, I must be allowed to do what I want to do. And that way of thinking is so strong that nobody else is entitled to come along and say, well, hang on a minute. Because that's the trump card. It's always the trump card. Who are you to say what I should do with my body if I feel like a girl? However a man is supposed to know what it's like to feel like a girl anyway, well, who knows that? But if you think... If I think that that's what I am, then that's what I am. It's it's sad, you know. It's bad, and it's sad, and it's all because this book is forgotten. And this nation is at the forefront of nations that want to forget it. Sad to say. There was a a conference of secularists just a few years back in Europe, and speaker after speaker were saying that Scotland is the nation we need to model for how to secularise the education system. That tells its own tale. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing when you go to the continent now and see a Sabbath better kept than you do in Scotland. In any case, this need to worship and to adore actually goes further than that. It doesn't just go on to mankind, but it goes on to nature as a whole. 
there's a tendency to begin to worship nature, Mother Earth, and the cosmos. And even though, according to their theory, it was never designed in the first place, you're supposed to approach it as though it was designed. I was on a website, I couldn't actually find it when I was looking it up again yesterday, but I was on a website some time ago that was designed to teach you how to to have feelings of awe and wonder when you would look at the universe. There was no word of the thing being made, but just awe and wonder. Now, it's actually impossible to be in awe at something that's not made when you really think about it. I mean, suppose somebody, let's say a lorry, pours a a whole lorry load of chips onto, onto the ground, and they're there, you know, hundreds of thousands of them. You're in awe at how they fell. Well, you can do the thing another billion times and they'll fall differently. So what's the point of being in awe at any one of these when they would all be that way? If you understand what I mean, they would all be in a different way. Well, if you have a natural evolutionary point of view, then the world just is what it is. Like dealing a pack of cards, that's the way it came out. Why be in awe at that? Because there's another billion possible worlds that it could have been. Maybe better, maybe worse. Why be in awe? You can only be in awe if there's a design if there really is a designer, if there is a maker, if all the intricate things in the world, the most complex things, which by the way includes the human cell, which everybody thought was just going to be a basic building block. Building block, it's a factory. It's an immensely complicated factory. If, if all these things are genuinely designed, designed, that is a reason to be in awe. Friends, I can go out and look at the sky at night, as you should do too. And I say, when I look up into the heavens, which thine own fingers framed, the sun and the moon and the stars, which were by thee ordained, then I say, what is man that he remembered is by thee. But you can't, because that's just how it happened. There's nothing to be in awe at. But everybody knows deep down that it is designed. It's funny how even the naturalists, you know, you get these television programs which are based on the premise that it all just happened this way. But, but you have the hushed tones of David Attenborough, you know. You know the tones very well yourself. The way that he speaks, it lends a kind of mystical, uh, semi-religious aura to the thing that's happening, you see, when the birds are doing this or whatever. And everybody's in awe at it. Did the thing just happen? Or was it made that way? To me, that makes a big difference. should make a big difference to you too. But you see, what happened through the years was that people loved this nature so much that, that they began to ed- deify it. They began to make a, a god of it. And that's where the system of idolatry as we know it comes from. The Egyptians had it. The Babylonians had it. Investing the powers of nature personifying them. Here's a god of sexual fertility, so they make it in the shape of a, of a calf or a bull, and, and so it goes on. And really, they're, they're not worshipping the actual things that they've made, because they weren't that stupid either. But they are actually worshipping these powers, which they've incarnated in there, and they've represented them in there. It's just a way of feeling wonderful about the world in which we're in. You'll notice at the end of the day that even if they're in awe at something greater than themselves, they so manoeuvre these religions that they're still in charge. 
the worship of Baal, which used to always creep into Israel, allowed for sexual immorality. That's how you celebrated the fertility rites. Well, that's not difficult for human nature to adapt to. So even when we worship nature, we're actually pleasing ourselves. And you think idolatry is something that a few silly people engaging here and there? No, not at all. It's very complex. It's very subtle. It's all over the place. And it's definitely knowing other gods before this one. Now, I just want to say one more thing about this, and then I'll just leave it. Well, sorry, two things, but I'll be quick with it. You'll notice this prohibition of idolatry, the way it's written here. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, we all get our ideas of these things as children when we first hear them, but I always thought growing up that that, that was a priority issue. Don't have any other gods before me. That is kind of in the pecking order. But that's not what it means. It doesn't mean don't have any other gods ahead of me. We're not supposed to have any gods ahead of him or behind him. The word before me in the Hebrew means in front of my face. In other words, in my presence. That's what it's saying. You shall have no other gods in my presence. And of course the next question arises, what does that mean then? God is present specially in some ways. He, he is covenantally present here in the worship. He's omnipresent in the sense that he is, well, as omnipresent means he's everywhere. But that's really what that means here. What God is is highlighting here is, is not so much the locality um, but the shame of the thing. Don't have any other gods because they will always be before my face. And whose face is that but the face of the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. In other words, it's a shame to have an idol. It's a shame for me, however much I should love my family and however much I do, to put them before God. It's a shame for me to put my work before God. My work didn't bring me out of Egypt or deliver me from the house of bondage. It's a shame to make money, my God. It doesn't bring me out of the house of bondage and out of the land of Egypt. Never, never really clothed me, warmed me or fed me. That's a great motivator not to sin. When Joseph was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, who would have been a very beautiful and powerful woman, she would have been both, and Joseph could have advanced his own career very quickly, we're told that every single day she tempted him to lie with her. And Joseph turned to her and said, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Uh, he could have said, and it would have been true, how could I do this wickedness and sin against your husband who gave me this post in the first place? That would have been true. But what kept Joseph all his life was that he looked to the right person. He had a fear of the right person. 
He, he wanted to walk properly before the right person. The way we live our life very often depends on who we think is looking over our shoulder. It's best to know that God's looking over our shoulder, and especially the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. How can we have any other gods before him? But that's the last point that I want to make. It's easy from what I've said tonight to think that only non-Christians are guilty of this sin. It's easy to think that. It's easy to think that only unbelievers have other gods before Jehovah. But one of the great epistles of love is 1 John. Uh, Five chapters speaking of the love of God and our love for God and God's love for us. But I don't know if you ever noticed how suddenly and starkly the letter closes. It closes with this, little children, he's talking to fellow believers there, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Keep yourselves from idols. Let that be a reminder to you, even even the godliest out there among you, whoever that be, let it be a reminder to you that you need to be kept every single day from idolatry. So what more even to the commandment than that? But thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, (laughs) I remember being told once when I started in the ministry, don't say it's your last point if it's not your last point. Uh, I've just done that. But I just want to read this to you, actually, before I close. And I am closing with this. Significantly, there was a competition to rethink the Ten Commandments recently. And uh, submissions came from 18 countries, and the winners were selected by a panel of judges. Now, I'm going to read them to you. Here's the ten. Number one, be open-minded and willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, Every person has the right to control their own body. Five, it is not necessary to have a God to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you need to take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no one right way to live. Ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Strange, you know, but um, suppose the world spared for another 2,000 years. They'll all recognise they were written in the early 21st century. No doubt about that. We could have a lot of fun with these commandments. They're bristling with inconsistencies. Uh, confusions, contradictions. Every person has the right to control their body. Says who? Like, like, who says that? This panel? Where, like, what if I want to control you? Or you want to control me? Who says? Um, it's not necessary to have God to be a good person. Who says what a good person is? Sorry? What's a meaningful life? By whose definition? If my life is made more meaningful by 
getting sexual satisfaction out of minors, then who are you to say that that's a problem if it gives me meaning? Treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. What does reasonably mean? We have the responsibility to consider future generations. Who says? Who says? If we're all species and millions of species have died out, doubtless we'll die out under this scenario too. So, I mean, future generations, well, if I want to look after my generation and myself and my family, who are you to say future generations? There is no one right way to live. Does that include looking after future generations? (laughs) Dear me, number nine can't be consistent with number two. Leave the world a better place than you found it. What's better? You feel like doing what Fergus Ewing did with the proposals, don't you? Just tearing them up. Because that's all they're worth. They're worth nothing. And it's amazing, really, but when you compare that bureaucratic mishmash with the ten words that God spoke. What an astonishing difference. One reeks of humanism. The other has a simplicity. It's got a grandeur. It's got a majesty and a comprehensiveness. A dignity that commends itself to your conscience. Because it is the truth. May you have no other gods before your maker, creator, and may God grant it, your redeemer. Let us pray. O Lord, teach us the perfect way of your divine commands, that we might observe them to the end. How can we have any other God before the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life? O save us from the foolishness of idolatry, worshipping ourselves or others or the world which you have made by the power of your own hand. In the name of Christ, O Lord, we pray. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 96. Psalm 96. verse 5 we're told that all the gods are idols dumb which blinded nations fear but our God is the Lord by whom the heavens created world and then tells us to come into his presence and to glorify his name let's sing, uh, we'll just sing verses uh, 4 to 6 these three stanzas and we stand to sing them to God's praise <coughs>
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.